Hello, welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today. Today is Tuesday, February 14. Happy Valentine's Day. I'm your reader, Kathleen. From the front page of the Gazette today, Deputy Faces Long-Term Wounds After Being Shot. This story by Trish Mahaffey. A Lynn County Sheriff's deputy was in intense pain and couldn't feel his left leg after being shot seven times and falling face-first onto the floor at the Casey store in Coggan. He testified Monday as colleagues rushed to help him. Deputy William Halverson said he didn't recall a lot of police radio traffic as other deputies were responding to a robbery and shooting June 20, 2021. But he recalled hearing Deputy Matt Oltman, although he couldn't communicate much to him. A body camera video shows Oltman frantically yelling outside the store asking, Where is he? Where is he? Will! 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 Before he saw Halverson inside the store. Halverson said Oltman began checking for wounds and applied a tourniquet to his lower left thigh before paramedics arrived. Halverson in the video cries out in pain as Oltman applies the tourniquet and he continues to wail and groan as Oltman attempts to assess the wounds. Halverson on Monday continued his testimony from Friday during the attempted murder trial of Stanley Donahue, who was accused of shooting Halverson during the 2021 robbery. The deputy Friday identified Donahue as the man who shot him, testifying he thought Donahue was going to kill him. Donahue, 38, is charged with two counts of first-degree robbery, attempted murder of a police officer, two counts of false imprisonment, willful injury, attempt to elude, disarming a peace officer, trafficking in stolen weapons, and possession of a firearm as a felon. The prosecution continues its case today. Closings are expected to be Friday. Halverson, during Monday's testimony, said his injuries from the seven shots included a broken left thigh bone, vertebrae, and both hips, and damage to his lungs and torso. He also had contact injuries, bruising and abrasions, from bullets penetrating the protective vest he was wearing at the time. Halverson, who became emotional during testimony, underwent a surgery to insert a rod for a broken thigh bone and screws inserted in his left knee. He couldn't walk for about six months. Halverson admitted he rushed his recovery time because he wanted to get back to work, but broke a screw in his leg because he pushed himself too much. It took about six or seven months to walk without a cane and 12 months to run again. He returned to work after January 2022 and was initially assigned to the jail and then went back to patrol in March or April. He will have long-term effects from his injuries, including lower back pain, arthritis, and that his left leg is shorter than his right leg. Linn County Attorney Nick Maybanks asked him what injuries would he have suffered if he wasn't wearing a protective vest. The shots that struck his vest would have injured his stomach, kidney, lung, and liver, if not for the vest, Halverson said. Maybanks asked if he was sure the man who shot him that night was Donahue. I'm 100% sure, Halverson said. Halverson said he saw Donahue's face when he first opened the door to the store that night, and Donahue was standing near the front door and counter. The prosecution played that portion of the store surveillance video. The deputy recalled seeing a coldness in Donahue's eyes. 
When Oatman at the store that night, Halverson was shot down just inside the door. Oatman saw blood on Halverson's shirt and leg, but the deputy was conscious and breathing. He told Oatman he had been shot in the left leg. Oatman applied a chest seal, a plastic adhesive bandage, to Halverson's back contact wound where his vest was struck with a bullet. When paramedics arrived, Oatman cleared the store to make sure nobody else was there, but he found two employees that authorities said Donahue had forced into the cooler. Oatman also found shell casings and bullets at the scene. In other testimony, Monday, deputies told about their search and car pursuit of the suspect who had fled before they arrived. Deputy Heath Omar testified about seeing the suspect's gray Dodge minivan without headlights after a search perimeter was set up around the store and surrounding area. The van matched the description given by Halverson and Oltman. Omar said he tried to cut off the van, but the suspect drove around him. The suspect didn't have a passenger or anyone else with him, he said. The van steered off the street and onto a grassy area and then continued north on 3rd Street in Coggan, running stop signs and eventually went around a road close sign where concrete barriers were set up because a bridge was closed. Omar said the suspect reached 60 to 70 miles per hour in a 25 zone during the pursuit. The van crashed into a concrete barrier and the suspect jumped out and ran. Omar testified he got out and pursued him, but eventually lost sight of him. Omar said he called for an officer with a police dog and stayed at the location so the dog could start a track. Omar said he saw the suspect's clothing and his face making eye contact with him before he fled after the crash. He testified the suspect was Donahue. Deputy Derek Steins, a canine handler who brought his dog Bingo to track the suspect, Testified Bingo alerted and detected an odor in a tall patch of grass near Aldridge Road. The grass had an indentation consistent, he said, with a human lying down. Bingo continued to track, but then lost the scent beyond that area. Steins was involved in the arrest of Donahue the next day, June 21, 2021. Authorities had a report that a man matched the suspect's description was walking on Aldridge Road. Donahue was wearing black clothing, no shoes, and possibly black socks, Steins said. His clothes were dirty, like someone had come out of a field. In a police dashboard camera video, Donahue is seen face down on the road when officers give him commands and quickly approach him with guns drawn. Donahue was found with a large amount of cash, change, and cigarettes, authorities said. Last Friday, witnesses testified he took $239 in cash and change, <clears throat> 89 packs of cigarettes, and numerous car chargers. Also on the front page, this story by Vanessa Miller, Kirkwood cuts more programs and faculty. A month after announcing plans to relocate and cut services in Iowa City, Kirkwood Community College announced plans Monday to close two programs, downsize a third, and eliminate faculty and staff positions to, quote, bring future budgets in line with expected revenue, end quote. Specifically, the Cedar Rapids-based Kirkwood is closing its dental technology program and its energy, energy production and distribution technologies program due to low enrollment. 
The closures will become official once all current students complete their studies in those areas, Kirkwood officials said. The college also is changing its truck driving program within its Continuing Education and Training Services Division, again due to low enrollment numbers over the last five years. Those changes will end the behind-the-wheel portion of the school's commercial driver's license program after the current class finishes. However, Kirkwood officials reported there are ongoing discussions with third-party providers capable of offering driver training for interested students to complement Kirkwood's classroom instruction. The change comes amid a nationwide shortage of truck drivers and months after Cedar Rapids-based CRST closed its own driver training program after 10 years. The move has the support of area transportation companies, according to a Kirkwood News release. More details about the future of a CDLA program will be announced in the coming weeks. The decision followed a long-term viability analysis and is being made in light of the significant and ongoing cost of maintaining up-to-date technology and equipment. Kirkwood didn't immediately release the internal review of its operations that compelled the closure of its four credit programs or the long-term viability analysis of its truck driving program. It didn't share current enrollments of the effective programs nor did it immediately provide specific numbers of faculty and staff positions cut. A small reduction in the number of faculty and staff has also been announced, according to Kirkwood. These adjustments were made as a result of program changes, facility closures, and lower enrollment in some areas. Kirkwood President Lori Sundberg, set to retire later this year, said the changes will allow the college to use its resources where they are most needed. Part of our mission is to identify community needs in order to provide exceptional education and training for the communities we serve across our seven counties, Sundberg said in a statement, adding, those needs change over time. Kirkwood needs to change with them, she said. While that sometimes involves difficult decisions, we are making these changes in order to serve our area, according to Sundberg. Kirkwood has adjusted our approach and resources accordingly to increase student retention and completion, she said. The greater the number of graduates, the greater the impact they will have on our region. Kirkwood's six-year graduation rate for full-time, first-time undergraduates who started in 2017 was 33%, according to the Integrated Post-Secondary Education Data System. Its full-time retention rate for the fall 2019 cohort was 63%. The Cedar Rapids-based community college, like its 14 community college peers across Iowa, has been losing enrollment since the Great Recession. And although the 15-college system collectively reported an enrollment uptick this year, Kirkwood was among a handful with fewer students in the fall. After receiving some of the massive 2020 pandemic-compelled student loss in 2021, Kirkwood in the fall of 2022 reported 12,414 students, down about 1.5% from 12,607 and 12.5% below the pre-pandemic 14,182 in the fall of 2019.
Last summer, Kirkwood closed two of its eight region and county centers due to sagging enrollment and a significant decrease in the use of those locations. The 28-year-old Tippy Mansfield Center in Belle Plaine and the 31-year-old Cedar County Center in Tipton permanently closed June 30. In January, officials said they were moving most of Kirkwood's Iowa City operations to its regional center in Coralville and planned to sell the Iowa City campus on the southeast side of town. Those changes followed an assessment of Kirkwood's assets that found, if nothing changed over the next 24 years, the college would spend nearly $40 million maintaining the Iowa City campus. The campus, according to the assessment, has a classroom use rate under 40% and saw a 75% enrollment slide from 2016 to 2021. Based on those declines, Sundberg said Kirkwood too will cut sections offered to best meet the needs of current enrollment levels in Johnson County. Based upon the number of face-to-face sections needed in Iowa City, we will be able to meet student demand by reducing sections and maximizing enrollment, Sundberg wrote in a message to faculty and staff in January. Also on the front page today, this story is by Aaron Murphy for the Gazette Des Moines Bureau titled, Blind Iowans Worry They'll Lose Services. Blind Iowans poured into a legislative hearing Monday to express strong disagreement with an element of Governor Kim Reynolds' proposal to realign state government that would enable her to appoint the director of the state agency that provides services for the blind. Currently a three-member commission of gubernatorial appointees in the Iowa Department of the Blind affects officers, including the agency's director. Under Reynolds' sweeping proposal to realign state government, the director also would be appointed by the governor and subject to confirmation by the Iowa Senate. Blind Iowans, including the state agency's current director, said that proposal opens the door to an employee excuse me, an appointee who may not be blind and thus not have direct experience with what it is like to live blind. I cannot say this is a good this is good for blind Iowans. I know I'm not supposed to say that. Emily Wharton, who has been director of the Iowa Department of the Blind since twenty sixteen and was born legally blind, told state lawmakers during a legislative hearing. Other state agency directors who have testified to lawmakers on the Reynolds state government realignment bill have all praised the proposal. The state estimates there are roughly 54,000 Iowans who have experienced vision loss. The Iowa Department for the Blind helps educate, train, and empower blind Iowans to develop their independence and job skills. Eight blind Iowans testified during Monday's hearing while many others listened. Some of those who spoke praised the services that Iowa provides to blind residents, especially compared with other states. They said they worry those state-run programs could become less valuable if the agency is directed by someone without the proper expertise. I've heard our governor say many times that Iowans know what's best for Iowans. I would think that would go for the blind Iowans, too said Mike Jones, a blind man from Des Moines. Blind Iowans know what's best for blind Iowans. Becky Young, president of the Des Moines chapter of the National Federation for the Blind, 
said she has been impressed by how Iowa's state services help blind residents and that she also worries that the program could look in how the program could look in the future under Reynolds's proposal. These students are prepared. They are confident blind people, said Young, who was born blind. It won't be a good thing without blind people running the department, blind people who know about blindness, not some ophthalmologist who's more concerned about the sighted than they are the blind. An official from the governor's office who attended the hearing said the proposal to make the department head a gubernatorial appointee matches with the philosophical approach to Reynolds' broader state government reorganization, which is that agency heads within the executive branch should be accountable to the governor. At some point, we have to start paying attention to the people who are impacted by these legislative decisions, said Senator Nate Bolton, a Democrat from Des Moines and one of the lawmakers on the panel who is considering the legislation. Bolton noted the meeting itself provided an example of why the involvement of experts is important, even though the proposal includes moving the Iowa School for the Deaf in Council Bluffs from under the State Board of Regents to the State Education Department. No American Sign Language signer was there for the hearing, and lawmakers and staff had a difficult time communicating with the blind Iowans who wished to speak. The people are telling us without exception this is a bad idea, people who have experiences and knowledge, Bolton said. Lawmakers said they will continue their work on the governor's proposal, Senate Study Bill 1123, which is nearly 1,600 pages long, and it lays out a reorganization and streamlining of state government. Turning now to the Iowa Today page, GoDaddy will lay off 35 in Hiawatha, this story by Emily Anderson. Internet hosting and domain name registrar business GoDaddy announced last week it will lay off 8% of its global workforce. Those layoffs will affect 35 employees at the company's Hiawatha office. A Worker Adjustment and Retraining Notification Act notice filed last week in Iowa shows that the Hiawatha layoffs will be completed by May 1st. The company declined to share how many people are currently employed at the local office. The layoffs are part of an ongoing plan to integrate three of GoDaddy's other brands, Media Temple, Main Street Hub, and 123Reg, into the GoDaddy brand, according to a statement put out by GoDaddy CEO Aman Bhutani. During the last year, we worked hard to deliver value for our customers and results for GoDaddy. Despite increasingly challenging macroeconomic conditions, we made progress on our 2022 strategic initiatives and continued our efforts to manage costs effectively. The discipline we embraced was important, but unfortunately, it was not sufficient to avoid the impacts of slower growth in the prolonged, uncertain, macroeconomic environment, Bhutani said in a statement. Laid-off employees will receive a transition package that includes 12 weeks of paid administrative leave plus two weeks of severance per year worked with a minimum of four weeks, as well as extended health care coverage, according to the statement. GoDaddy announced plans last year to move from its Hiawatha office to a smaller office in downtown Cedar Rapids. 
Company spokesperson Christy Nicholas said the office will be moving to the Armstrong Center, 222 3rd Avenue Southeast in Cedar Rapids sometime this year. And also on the Iowa Today page, Highway 30 Coalition continues a push to make road four lanes across Iowa. Iowa's State Transportation Commission would be required to prioritize making Highway 30 four lanes under a bill advanced by a panel of state lawmakers. A Senate Transportation Subcommittee Monday advanced to full committee Senate File 111 by Senator Chris Cornoyer, a Republican from LeClaire, which would require the state to make the entire length of Highway 30 four lanes, including a 40-mile stretch between DeWitt and Lisbon and between Carroll and Ogden in western Iowa. Economic developers, business leaders, and government officials in Clinton County have advocated for the better part of two decades for the state to modify and expand Highway 30 between DeWitt and Lisbon to four lanes. Representatives with Grow Clinton County, which works to promote business growth in the region, told lawmakers such a project would spur rural business development, foster population growth, improve roadway safety, lessen congestion on Interstate 80, and match the majority of Highway 30's cross-state footprint. Cornoyer's district includes Clinton County. Instead of a four-lane layout, the Iowa Department of Transportation's five-year highway plan calls for changing the current two-lane layout of Highway 30 from Lisbon to Stanwood to a Super 2 configuration that would enable the construction of wider lanes a hard shoulder, and occasional turning and passing lanes. Construction is slated to occur in 2025 and 26. Meanwhile, work is ongoing to finish four-lane construction in Benton County, which is slated to be completed by next year, according to the DOT. Stuart Anderson, Director of Transportation Development for the Iowa DOT, said the DOT decided against a four-lane layout in favor of the Super 2 alternative due to cost savings. He said the DOT estimated it would cost 15 to 20 percent of the cost of upgrading to a four-lane highway and wouldn't require nearly as much property acquisition. DOT officials, too, doubt that expanding the highway to four lanes would, on its own, spur an economic boon. I'm really just trying to keep this in front of the Commission to make sure that they understand how important the full four-lane Highway 30 is to the rural parts of our state and what it can do for economic development. And in terms of, in terms of taking pressure off of I-80 and just helping move goods and people across the state in a safe way, Cornorio said, so I'm going to recommend passage so we can keep the conversation going. Turning now to the Insight page, the guest editorial today is from the Washington Post, a rare ransomware win. We hacked the hackers. That's how Deputy Attorney General Lisa O. Monaco described the shutdown of a major ransomware operation that the Justice Department announced last month. This law enforcement coup has handed federal officials what they needed most in an age of nonstop hacking, a win. The FBI and law enforcement in Europe managed over the summer to infiltrate the servers and websites run by Hive, a criminal gang responsible for extorting over $100 million in payments 
from more than 1,500 entities in over 80 countries. By creeping around the system covertly for months, agents were able to provide ransomware victims with decryption keys, the technological tools they need to break criminals' holds on their computers and their data. This meant targets had no need to cough up when the hackers demanded money. A single example illustrates the impact. With FBI help, a Louisiana hospital managed to avoid a $3 million ransom last year and prevent the kind of disastrous scenario that might have led to the 2019 death of a baby in Alabama when a ransomware attack cut off the nurse's desk from heartbeat monitoring equipment. This type of aggressive rooting out of bad actors is essential as attacks continue to mount from gangs who believe they can break the law with impunity because, in many cases, they can. Careful coordination with other countries to trace payments more effectively is important, too. Arrests are yet to come, but the investigation is ongoing, and already it represents one of the most effective steps this nation has taken to disrupt the scourge. There still is far to go. Just this week, a large-scale campaign capitalizing on a known vulnerability felled computers around the world. Ransomware won't go away until it doesn't pay. Pursuing individual gangs can help, but systemic change also is necessary. The international community needs to put pressure on havens for criminals, such as Russia, to crack down. Every country needs to discourage victims from paying, and at the very least encourage them to inform authorities of attacks. Only 20% of Hive's victims FBI Director Christopher Wray pointed out, reported issues to law enforcement. It should be 100%. After all, the FBI can't help victims it doesn't know who are in trouble. And 24-hour doorman titled, We'd Love to See Iowa Tax Plan. If Governor Kim Reynolds gets her way, and she usually does, Iowa's personal income taxes will be eliminated by the final year of her current term in 2026. This is a significant development, to say the least. But if you're hoping to hear the plan, you're out of luck, at least for now. That's because the governor didn't make this announcement in Iowa, where she would face questions from State House reporters. Instead, Reynolds dropped her bombshell in Washington, D.C., at a forum sponsored by the Cato Institute, sitting in front of a banner proclaiming limited government and free markets. I think Iowans know better what to do with their money than government, she said, according to the Gazette's Tom Barton, who watched a live stream. When you let Iowans decide what they're going to do with their money, we see communities flourish, we see the state flourish, we see revenue grow, so it works. But income tax revenue won't grow if the tax rate is zero. During the current fiscal year, the state is projected to collect nearly $5.6 billion in personal income taxes, or nearly half of all general fund revenues. The general fund pays for line items, including funding for public schools, universities, human services, mental health, and a long list of needs. We're already on track to cut Iowa's income tax rate to a flat 3.9 percent by 2026, resulting in a tax reduction of $2 billion annually. Eliminating income taxes would leave a bigger budget hole. 
Neither Reynolds nor legislative Republicans have said how they'd fill it. They talk instead about budget surpluses, claiming they're proof of Iowa's fiscal responsibility. As I've explained previously, Republican budgeting policy involves spending far less than what's allowed by Iowa law, socking away big surpluses and dumping large deposits into the taxpayer relief fund, which is supposed to cover the cost of tax cuts. In her budget plan for fiscal 2024, Reynolds socks away a projected $2 billion budget surplus and deposits more than $600 million into the Taxpayer Relief Fund, raising its balance to $3.4 billion. Impressive, to be sure. But if revenues drop, which they are bound to do no matter how much Republicans claim tax cuts will spur growth, there's going to be less money to sock away, especially if you eliminate half of general fund revenues. Then what? Reynolds has a government reorganization plan. But according to the Des Moines Register, that plan will save $215 million over the next four years. So not enough to cover lost income taxes. Meanwhile, the governor and Republicans created state-funded private school tuition accounts that will cost nearly $1 billion over the next four years. Maybe they'll raise the sales tax, but it would take a big increase to make up for lost income taxes. A system that relies on sales taxes would be bad news for low-income Iowans, but it would be a boon for the wealthy. Spending cuts would be bad news for Iowans who need services or want adequately funded schools, mental health care, and resources for other priorities. Reynolds clearly cares more about making a national splash and helping her friends and donors. Regardless of the details, that's always the plan. And two community letters to read today. First, supporters of Solar Bill don't respect everyone. In the article, Iowa Bill Would Limit Commercial Solar Panel Construction, February 9, State Senator Dan Zumbach, a Republican from Ryan, says of State Study Bill, or excuse me, Senate Study Bill 1077, quote, most people that live around commercial solar panels don't like what they look like when they're used to looking at farmland and pastures, and they see this new industrial-style product coming into their farmland, it's about showing respect for everybody on each side of the fence." End quote. Showing respect for everybody? Solar panels don't emit noxious odors, like industrial CAFOs. Solar panels don't pollute water with nitrogen runoff and chemicals from industrial farming. Solar panels don't emit methane and CO2, like industrial agriculture. If Senator Zumbach is serious about showing respect for everybody, he would be proposing meaningful legislation that does that. This bill is simply another hindrance to reasonable, responsible, much-needed change that would benefit everyone. And that's signed by Ed Fisher from Iowa City. And the second letter, dissatisfied with missing Gazette TV section. Just a short note to express my dissatisfaction with the Gazette regarding the TV week. Multiple times it has not been included in Saturday editions. A phone call was not answered. There was no responses, save one to multiple emails. That one response said only that it shouldn't happen. But I guess my feelings on the matter are unimportant. Signed, Richard Drake from Brooklyn. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today, Tuesday, February 14, 
on iris. And now we turn to today's obituary page, beginning with the short notices, first from Cedar Rapids. Patricia, known as Tricia A. Capaccioli, 56, died Friday, February 10. Papich Cuba, funeral service. In Coralvera, Mary Ellen Schmidt, age 69, died Saturday, February 11. The Kloster Funeral Home from Marengo is assisting the family. In Lost Nation, Barbara Small, 90, died Monday, February 13. Chapman Funeral Home, Clarence. In Olwine, John McBride, age 77, died Thursday, February 9. Gielenfeld Buner Funeral Home is in charge of arrangements. In Tama, Delia Ann Schroeder, 93, died Sunday, February 12th. Cruz Phillips Funeral Home is assisting. And in Williamsburg, Lori Ann Kelly, age 53, died Sunday, February 12. Powell Funeral Home is in charge of arrangements. Turning now to the regular notices, first from Cedar Rapids, Cameron Sollenberger, 54, of Cedar Rapids, passed away Saturday, February 11, at Mercy Medical Center in Cedar Rapids. Visitation will be from 3 to 8 p.m. Friday, February 17th, at the Knoll Ridge Christian Church, located at 7111 C Avenue Northeast in Cedar Rapids. Funeral services will be held at 11 a.m. on Saturday, February 18th, at the church. Entrusted with the arrangements is Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home. A full obituary will follow. From Cedar Rapids, Dean Allen Lake of Burlington, Iowa, passed away, and Dean's celebration of life will be at 11 a.m. Saturday, February 18th at Yoder Powell Funeral Home in Kelowna. Burial will be at Wellman Cemetery. A visitation will be from 9.30 until 11 a.m. Saturday, February 18th at the Yoder Powell Funeral Home in Kelowna. Messages may be left at the powellfuneralhomes.com website. From Marion, Annalie Paul Arnold, age 91, passed away Wednesday, February 8, at Terrace Glen Village in Marion. A memorial service will be held at a later date. You can share a memory of Annalie at murdochfuneralhome.com. In Iowa City, Chester Laws of Iowa City died January 24 at age 101. Memorial services with military honors will be held at 2.30 p.m. Sunday, February 19th at Gay and Chia Funeral and Cremation Service. To share a condolence, please visit gayandchia.com. From Manchester, Betty Jean McIntosh, age 93, passed away Saturday, February 11th at Marietta's Place in Manchester. Online condolences can be sent to Leonard Muller Funeral Home, Mass of Christian Burial will be at 11 a.m. Friday, February 17th at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Manchester with the Rev. Gabriel Anderson officiating. The service will be live-streamed and is available at blessedtrinitycluster.com. Visitation for Betty is from 9 to 10.45 a.m. Friday, February 17th at St. Mary's in Manchester. The rosary will be decided by the Catholic Daughters. Interment will be at Oakland Cemetery in Manchester. From Homestead, Carol Ann Dolezal of Homestead died Sunday, February 12th. 
at age 73. Funeral services will be at 3 p.m. Saturday, February 18th at St. Mary's Auditorium in Oxford, where there will be a time of visitation for family and friends from 1 to 3 on Saturday. For a complete obituary or to share a thought or memory, visit gayandchia.com. In Lansing, Iowa, Claire Wagner, age 86, died February 11th in his home. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. Friday, February 17th, and 9.45 to 10.45 on Saturday, February 18th. A scripture service is planned for 4 p.m. Friday and funeral mass at 11 a.m. on Saturday, all taking place at Immaculate Conception Church in Lansing. From Cedar Rapids, Sarah L. Miller, age 41, died Sunday, February 12th. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. on Wednesday, February 15th at the Legacy Center at Murdoch Linwood in Cedar Rapids. Burial will take place at a later date at Linwood Cemetery. You can share a memory at MurdochFuneralHome.com. In Millersburg, Jerry Lynn Pope died Wednesday, February 8th at the English Valley Care Center in North English at the age of 84. Celebration of Life Service will be at 1 p.m. Wednesday, February 15th at the Powell Funeral Home in Williamsburg. Visitation will be Wednesday from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. at the Funeral Home. Burial will be at the Millersburg Cemetery. A general memorial has been established and you can leave a message or tribute at powellfuneralhome.com. From South Pittsburgh, Tennessee, Mildred Vesely Chalupsky passed away at her home in Shakerag Hollow Farm in South Pittsburgh, Tennessee, February 2nd. She was 96 years old. No services are scheduled at this time. Funeral arrangements have been entrusted to the Tate Funeral Home in Jasper, Tennessee. From Masonville, Eleanor J., known as Jean Hansen, 94, of rural Masonville, died peacefully Saturday afternoon, February 11, at the Good Neighbor Society in Manchester. Funeral services are at 2 p.m. Friday, February 17th at the Grace United Methodist Church in Lamont, Chris Anderson officiating. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. Thursday and for one hour before the service on Friday at Grace United Methodist. Inurnment will be at Chapton Oak Hill Cemetery at a later date. Fawcett Schmidt's funeral home, Winthrop and Lamont, is assisting the family. And lastly, from Olin, Olin, Dolores J. Wood, age 85, passed away Saturday, February 11, at her home. Her funeral service will be held at 11.30 a.m. Saturday, February 18th at St. John Lutheran Church. A visitation will be held Friday, February 17th from 4 to 7 p.m. at the Dawson Funeral Services in Olin. You can leave an online condolence at DawsonFuneral.com. Turning now to the sports page, three Metro teams are in the top five. This story by Jeff Johnson. Three Metro boys basketball teams are ranked in the top five of their respective classes in this week's Iowa High School Athletic Association poll. Cedar Rapids Kennedy remains number one in Class 4A. The Cougars at 19-0 passed a big test last week, winning three games. 
Kennedy edged Iowa City West 55 to 48, knocked off Iowa City High 76 to 44, and won at fourth-ranked West Des Moines Valley 64 to 50. The Cougars trailed in the fourth quarter of that game until taking over late. Valley at 15 and 5 played without standout guard and leading scorer Chris Denson, who was injured in his team's game the night before. Kennedy has another big game tonight at Cedar Rapids Xavier. The Saints at 14 and 5 are ranked fourth in Class 3A this week, one spot ahead of Marion at 16 and 4. Bondurant Farrar, 19 and 0, is the lone unbeaten in 3A and continues to be top ranked. Albertette at 19 and 3 picked up a big win, a big win last week over Gladbrook Rhinebeck to end the regular season and rejoins the ranking in Class 2A at 9th. Central Lion at 18 and 1 continues atop that class. Grandview Christian at 20 and 0 and North Lynn at 20 and 0 remain a solid 1 and 2 in Class 1A. Gladbrook Rhinebeck at 19 and 2 is third. Class 1A kicked off its postseason this past Friday night. There was a full slate of 1A and 2A district games last night across the state. And the IHSAA reveals Class 3A and 4A playoff brackets. The Iowa High School Athletic Association revealed those late Monday afternoon. Top substate seeds in 4A include number one ranked Cedar Rapids Kennedy, which is in a six-team pod with second-seeded North Scott, as well as Davenport West, Davenport North, Burlington, and Clinton. The top two seeds in each 3A and 4A substate have first-round buys. Indianola and Ames are the one and two seeds in a substate that also includes Linmar and Iowa City Liberty. Linmar and Liberty will play a first-round game February 20th at Linmar. West Des Moines Valley is the top seed in substate five, with Waterloo West the second seed. Cedar Rapids Washington and Cedar Rapids Jefferson will play a first-round game against each other in the substate, with Iowa City High playing against Waterloo East. In substate 2, Iowa City West and Cedar Rapids Prairie will play a first-round game at West. In Class 3A, Marion is the number one seed in substate 4, drawing Vinton Shellsburg in the first-round game on February 20th at home. That eight-team substate also includes Mount Vernon and Charles City. Cedar Rapids Xavier is the top seed in substate five, hosting Clear Creek Amana in that opening game. Davenport Assumption, Davenport Wallert, Maquoketa, Centerpoint Urbana, and Western Dubuque are among the others in the substate. Williamsburg and Benton Community play a first-round game in substate seven, an interesting substate geographically that includes top-seeded Waverly Shell Rock and Des Moines Hoover, among others. All the first-round games in 3A are February 20th, with second-rounders the 23rd and substate finals February 27. In 4A, open-round substate games are February 20, second-rounders are the 24th, and the finals are February 28. Turning to the community page, this Eastern Iowa brief, tax time just got a little less stressful thanks to the Volunteer Income Tax Assistance Program. 
qualifying low to moderate income households in Johnson County can receive free tax preparation assistance from trained volunteers from the University of Iowa Tippie College of Business. VITA services are available through April 11. This year, tax returns will be completed on an appointment-only basis. Appointments can be made at biz.uiowa.edu slash VITA. Eligible households must have a 2022 annual income below $58,000. Translation services are available and can be made in advance by calling Ann Leonard at Johnson County Social Services at 319-356-6090. All volunteers are certified by the IRS in preparing returns and have had at least one tax course as part of their coursework or law training. Electronic filing is provided so taxpayers can receive their refunds quickly. VITA is a partnership among Johnson County Social Services, the UI Tippie College of Business, Iowa Center for Economic Success, and Green State Credit Union. This story from the Business 380 page, Putting Blindness on Hold using AI. This story is by Steve Gravel. Dr. Michael Abramoff spotted the problem early in his career as an ophthalmologist. Patients not getting the care they need and deserve, Abramoff said. On the other hand, I could see the technology maybe doing what I could do. Abramoff, 59, moved to Iowa City in 2003 from his native Netherlands to study ophthalmology. He also earned a Ph.D. in medical image analysis and a master's degree in computer science and is a professor at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. It's the best place in the world to do it, to learn from the best people, he said. I stayed because of the wonderful people. Abramoff specializes in treating the retina, the inner light-sensitive layer of tissue, in the eye. He knows people with diabetes are at special risk of damage to the retina. The condition, diabetic retinopathy, affects up to 80% of those with diabetes and is a leading cause of blindness in developed countries. Early detection and treatment can prevent blindness, just but just 15% of those with diabetes had retinal exams as part of their annual physical. The exam has to be conducted by an ophthalmologist specializing in the retina, adding the expense and inconvenience of a second appointment. Patients in rural areas might have to travel hours to a specialist. With his computer experience, Abramoff thought artificial intelligence, or AI, could be developed to detect swelling of the center of the retina, the most common early indicator of diabetic blindness. He launched what would become Digital Diagnostics in 2010, beginning the arduous clinical trials to gain Food and Drug Administration approval for a device that would scan a patient's retina, then analyze the resulting image to detect swelling or other flaws. They said, well, let's discuss this, Abramoff recalled. How do you prove there's no racial bias? How do you prove it's safe and effective? We designed the clinical trial and developed the AI, Autonomous Artificial Intelligence, we like to call it. In April of 2018, the FDA approved Digital Diagnostics IDX-DR for clinical care. 
It's since been adopted by the American Diabetes Association's standard of care. Now it happens right then and there, during a patient's routine physical, said Abramoff, who holds 23 patents. They get the AI exam in about 10 minutes. You don't need to be a specialist. Anyone in the office can do those exams. Most patients will be normal, but a few have to be told, you have this potentially blinding disease. You really need to see someone. Digital diagnostic staff is pursuing further medical applications for AI. Its use in the early detection of skin cancer appears promising, according to Abramoff, who is executive chairman of the company. Co-founders John Bertrand is the company's CEO and Seth Rainford its president. We look for those diseases and those patients where there's clinical evidence and proof that it can actually benefit the patient, he said. Part of it is building the technology, and we're really good at that. But if it's not helping health equity, I don't think we should be paying for it as taxpayers. We need to make sure everyone gets the care they deserve. Digital Diagnostics recently celebrated its 100th hiring. Scientists, computer engineers, people who know about machine learning, software developers. But at least as important in value is what we call customer success, he said. They work to make sure that it's working for users, so it's working for the patients. It's one thing to have an algorithm and build it, but it's more important that it works for the healthcare system and it works for the benefit of the patients. The company also maintains offices in Chicago and Austin, Texas, but its Iowa roots remain deep. It's an awesome team, Abramoff said. It's so exciting to see people who graduate from Iowa and want to stay here. The exciting work like we do wasn't there, and now it's there. Iowa has been so wonderful to me and my family that we wanted to give something back. Preventing blindness is important. Back to the community page, here are a couple of announcements. Lynn County Master Gardener, Emily Renshaw, will talk about drip irrigation for your home garden. This system is economical, conserves water, limits plant disease, and provides a low-maintenance option. That will be presented at the Hiawatha Public Library tonight from 6.30 to 7.30, and that is free. And Chatty Crafters, Bring your own crafts and socialize with others. Tea and coffee is provided. Colored pencils, coloring sheets, and other crafting supplies will be available at the Ely Public Library from 5 to 7 p.m. Also, there is a prayer support group for people who enjoy centering prayer, a form of meditation focused on silent prayer. That's offered at Prairie Woods Franciscan Spiritual Center in Hiawatha, and that takes place from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m., and that is free. Finishing up with the Valentine's Day weather story by meteorologist Hannah Messier. Happy Valentine's Day. Cedar Rapids has had a wide range of weather on Valentine's Feast Day. Historically, Valentine's Day isn't a very snowy holiday. The most snow that's ever fallen on February 14 in Cedar Rapids is 4 inches, that occurred in 1927. However, it was a very wet holiday on February 14 in 1911 when Cedar Rapids received 1.36 inches of precipitation. The warmest high temperature ever recorded in Cedar Rapids today 
was 64 degrees in 1954. The coldest high temperature in Cedar Rapids was minus 6 in 2021. This year we're expecting a mild forecast with highs reaching the mid-40s and a slight chance of rain. You might need an umbrella if you're heading out on a date night. The normal high for today is 32. The normal low is 64. Sunset tonight is at 5.38 p.m. Sunrise tomorrow at 7.03 a.m. That gives us 10 hours and 34 minutes of daylight. We're in the last quarter of the moon phase. Moonrise is at 3.19 p.m. Moon set at 12.06 p.m. That does it for the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today, Tuesday, February 14. You can obtain a copy of the reading of today on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Thank you for listening and have a great, safe day.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. Shortly after modern humans arrived in Europe, the Neanderthals disappeared, and scientists think we had something to do with it. Neanderthals, or their direct ancestors, migrated out of Africa and into the Middle East and Europe around 250,000 years ago. Soon, they were well adapted to the environment. Large eyes helped them see in the longer nights and darker winters. Stout bodies helped them retain heat and handle large prey, and provided space for the large liver and kidneys needed for a diet heavy in protein. Their brains were as big as ours, but spent processing power on their greater visual and motor abilities. This may not have allowed them to develop higher communication or conceptual thinking to match ours, which may have been their downfall. Modern humans arrived on the scene 45,000 years ago, less physically adapted, but more mentally adaptable. We had cooperative hunting methods superior to the Neanderthals, allowing us to outcompete them for food, and perhaps reducing the large herbivore populations that they depended on. We also had superior tools and weapons. When there were conflicts between the groups, as there have been among tribes throughout history, our superior technology probably allowed us to prevail. But we weren't only fighting. There must have been considerable interbreeding, since we can find 1-3% of the Neanderthal genome in modern man. Which means the Neanderthals never completely disappeared. A little bit of them is alive in us today. I'm Scott Tinker. EarthDate is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.